Well, if you have Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. For those of you who were with us last week, you may recall that the end of, in the end of chapter 17, Jesus was teaching us about, about the nature of his kingdom. And he told us that in his first coming, he inaugurates the kingdom, while in his second coming, he consummates the kingdom. So think of a, a new construction. You have the, uh, the groundbreaking ceremony and the, the, the cutting of the ribbon, inauguration, consummation. And we live in this inaugurated but not yet consummated kingdom. And now, in this parable before us in chapter 18, Jesus tells us that while we live in this era of the kingdom, we are to be a people who persevere in prayer. We are to be a people who persevere in prayer. So please turn your attention now to the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, prayer, like many other good disciplines in life, is one of those things that we know is good, we know is important to do, but we struggle to do it like we ought to. As you can see, this passage is calling us to persevere in prayer. In verse 1, Jesus says that this parable is all about how we ought to pray and not lose heart. We ought to always pray and not lose heart. Or think of what we read earlier in our service in 1 Thessalonians 5. First Thessalonians 5, the Apostle Paul is picking up what Jesus is saying here, that we ought to pray without ceasing. This is an important discipline for us as Christians to engage in. But it's difficult. This is a struggle for us. And so what I want us to do as we unpack this topic of a prayer and persevering in prayer is i like us to first consider the difficulty of prayer, And then we'll consider this parable specifically and this call to perseverance. And then lastly, we'll unpack this relationship between faith and prayer. So first, I'd like us to consider the difficulty of prayer. 
As I already alluded to in verse 1, Luke tells us that this parable is about how we ought to always pray and not lose heart. We ought to always pray and not lose heart. Now we know that we struggle to always pray. We know that we struggle to not grow discouraged in prayer. And so I'd like us just to spend a few moments thinking upon why prayer is so difficult. Why do we struggle to persevere in prayer? This is, in many ways, a universal challenge for us as, as sinful human beings. This was a, a problem for the disciples, which is why Jesus gives this parable in the first place. It's a struggle for us today and a struggle for every Christian bar Christ that's ever lived. So why? Why is prayer a challenge? Why do we struggle to not grow disheartened in, in our prayer life? Well, first, I, I think we struggle because of time. You know, as a pastor, one of the privileges that I have is that one of my job descriptions is to devote myself to prayer, the ministry of the word and prayer. But I would imagine for most of you here, that's not in your job description. <laughs> you spend 40, 50 plus hours a week in an ordinary secular vocation, which is a good and legitimate uh, vocation, which you bless your neighbor and give glory to God, but it's busy. And on top of that, you have many other responsibilities. You might be a husband, a father, a wife, a mother. You might have many other relationships with friends and families. You might have household responsibilities and duties. And you start to look at your week and the hours in your week, and you think, how do I have time to pray without ceasing? It's like your boss coming in and, and giving you 15 urgent tasks that need to be done by the end of the day and, and just says, go. It can be overwhelming. Another reason why we find prayer difficult is that we're not praying to someone who's physically present among us, bodily present among us. This is something that the Christians whom the author of the Hebrews was writing to in the book of Hebrews, they were struggling with this. It's one of the reasons why they had nostalgia for Judaism. They longed for the, the tangible, earthly, physical expression of a physical temple, a physical priest, a sacrifice that they could smell, and they're growing, growing weary with all of these reminders that the religion is heavenly. Praying to a God who's in the heavens, a priest who's in the heavens at his right hand, a heavenly sanctuary, a sacrifice that they did not witness, and they longed for the tangible, for the earthly, for the physical. Sometimes I think we long for that physical presence. We wish there could be some body language, some cue to signal, us that, signal to us that God's actually listening and hearing our prayers that we're bringing before him. Related to that, it, another problem, difficulty, is our un, unanswered prayers. I'm sure we all can relate to a time in our life where we prayed urgently to our Lord for a good thing, a good desire that aligned with his word, but God didn't answer that prayer according to our will. We grow weary, we grow disheartened, and we think, well, what's the point of prayer anyways if God's just going to do what he has willed to do from the foundation of the earth? Another difficulty in our prayer life is that we live in a culture, a society that does not value prayer. For many people whom we interact with, our neighbors, coworkers, prayer is just a relic from a pre-modern past. 
Maybe some people might have sympathy for prayer as a psychological benefit, but not as a means to actually pray to the God who is the creator and sustainer of the universe. It's very hard to go against the stream of culture. Very hard to go against the dominant mindset of society. No matter what era you live in, think of the late medieval period, which had a Christianized society and culture. I would imagine there's very many, uh, quite a few people in, say, the, the 1500s living in Europe who did not have a true, and, true and, and authentic faith, who, if they lived today, probably would be agnostic, an agnostic or an atheist. But they didn't have the conviction and the backbone to go against the stream of a Christianized culture. So they just went with the whole Christian thing, went to church, did the Christian rituals. And so today, if we don't have a deep conviction in what prayer is and why it's important, it's going, going to be very easy to get swept up into the dominant mindset of a modernist culture. A modernist culture that thinks prayer is absolutely ridiculous and laughable. Now, this is a challenge, yes, but it's also an opportunity. Now, there's opportunity in living in a, in a very post-Christian society and culture. And the reason that there's an opportunity is that if you're going to make it, you're going to have to grow deep roots into your theology. You're going to have to know robustly what you believe and why you believe it. There's not very many nominal Christians in post-Christian areas. You either get taken away by the current of society and culture, or you have deep roots in God's word and what you believe and why you believe it. Well, we probably can think of even more difficulties that plague us in our own prayer life. Suffering is another such example. Jesus knows this. He knows that this is a problem that plagues his people, not just his disciples, but even us today. And so he gives this parable in response to the difficulty, the discouragement that we face in our own prayer life. So let us consider uh, this parable, this parable about persevering in prayer. You'll notice that this, in this parable we have two characters. We have a judge who is described as a wicked judge. Luke tells us that he does not fear God or respect man. Two telltale signs that you're dealing with a wicked judge. And we also come across this widow who is involved in some sort of dispute. We don't know exactly what this dispute is. Some commentators speculate that it may be that her husband or her former husband's estate is being withheld from her, which would have been no small thing. Widows in the ancient world were especially vulnerable individuals, and her former husband's estate is probably her source of livelihood as a widow. And so this widow, rightly, is, is desperate, and so is constantly coming before this judge pleading for justice against her adversary. And this, this verb of kept coming that we read in, in this parable has the connotation of repetition. She's repeatedly coming before this judge asking for justice, for help. And after a number of attempts, this judge engages in some self-reflection. 
So in verses 4 and 5, we read the judge saying to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now this verb for beat down is literally refers to someone getting a black eye. It also has a figurative meaning of just being exhausted. Some commentators think that this, uh, this judge is recognizing that the widow is getting quite desperate. And one of these days, when she shows up on, on his doorstep, she might clock him. Or it might just mean that this judge is getting exhausted. Exhausted with that continual knock on his door. But either way, the image is, is of like a boxing ring, where one fighter either is, gets knocked out or is just exhausted and taps out. And so finally, this judge relents and grants this widow justice due to her continual pleading. And so Jesus' point in verses, uh, verses 6 and 7 is that if this wicked judge grants justice to this widow, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is good and righteous, grant his elect justice who cry out to him day and night? It's a lesser to a greater argument, a rhetorical tool that Jesus uses throughout his Gospels. And so the point is that we then are to be like this widow and persevere in our petitions, in our requests before a good and loving Heavenly Father who delights to hear and answer the prayers of His children. Now, we've already spent some time reflecting upon how this is difficult, and I imagine the reason why it's hard for us to implement what Jesus says here or what the Apostle Paul says elsewhere is not because we forget the importance of prayer in our life, nor is it because we forget these teachings of Scripture. Oftentimes, it's, we don't, it's because we don't know how to implement it into our lives. We, as I said before, we look at our lives and the hours that, um, uh, the, the responsibilities that we have and the hours that those responsibilities take, and we don't really know what it means to pray without ceasing, to pray always and never give up. What does that mean for an ordinary lay person? And so I'd like to give two suggestions by way of, of application to this point of a persevering prayer. And these two points aren't original to me. They come from the wisdom of our Reformed tradition, but I think they're helpful in applying and doing justice to what Jesus says here and what uh, other, uh, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere. So first, think with me of your own prayer life. When in your days and weeks do you pray? I would imagine that most of you are thinking about times during your days and weeks in which prayer has become a habit. Before meals. Maybe before bed. Maybe before, uh, when you're reading the Bible together with your family, family devotions. We don't do well in spontaneous praying. <laughs> if our main... Um, goal in our, our, our method of, of praying is just praying when we feel the urge to pray throughout the day, it probably isn't that often. We're engaged in our work and occupied, and spontaneous praying usually doesn't, doesn't lead to a whole lot of praying. 
And so one way in which we are able to do what Jesus calls us to do here, to pray always, is to make prayer a habit in our life, to habituate prayer, to make it second nature. For most of us, praying before a meal is second nature. We don't really have to think much about it. It doesn't require much discipline. It's just something that you do. In fact, this is what John Calvin, the great reformer in the 16th century Protestant Reformation, this is how he sought to help ordinary lay people obey these and other commands about how we ought to pray always. And in the Protestant Reformation, you're coming off the heels of the medieval church. Medieval church, there were uh, monks and monasteries who would pray every three hours the various offices of prayer uh, throughout the day and night. And the reformers recognized that monasticism was not biblical. Most people are called to ordinary vocations that take up most of the hours of one's week. And so they gave time to think about how ordinary Christians can obey passages like this. How do ordinary Christians pray always? So one suggestion that Calvin had is to make prayer a habit throughout one's day. And so his suggestion, which again was a suggestion, not a law, but his suggestion was to pray when you get up in the morning, to pray before and after meals, to pray before you start your, your daily work, and pray before you ret- uh, go to bed in the evenings. If you do just that, that in itself is nine times in which you're praying, which I believe is getting at the heart of what Jesus is calling us to do. To pray always does not mean that you're spending literally four hours a day praying. It's that it's a habitual part of your life, a continual repetitive part of your life. In our progressive sanctification, God works upon us in ways that fit our nature. And we are creatures of habit. In one sense, you can think of your entire life, your virtues and vices, through the lens of habits. Good habits and bad habits. And therefore, the way in which we grow in this progressive sanctification, the way in which the Spirit works in us, is the inculcation of good habits, habituating virtue within our life. The first practical way in which we can implement this call to persevere in prayer is to make prayer a habit. If you want to grow in prayer, think of specific times throughout your days and weeks in which you can make prayer second nature. It doesn't have to be long. We're called to this continual prayer throughout, throughout our life. Well, second... How many of you have, have begun praying and about two or three sentences in, your mind, your mind starts uh, wandering, trailing off, and you really have nothing else to pray for? And so this second way in which we can implement this is by praying scripture. Not only does that give us words to pray, but it also allows us to pray with confidence. Listen to what the uh, Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. John tells us that we are called to pray according to God's will. Now, of course, we don't know the secret will of God, but what will of God do we know? Well, the will of God, as it's been revealed to us in the scriptures. Only way we can have confidence that our, hear, our prayers are heard and, and, and will be answered by God will be if we are praying according to scripture. 
Now, of course, we know that the revealed will of God doesn't always come to pass in our lives. The law of God is part of God's will, and we know not everybody obeys that. But we do know that Scripture conforms to God's character. That when we pray in line with Scripture, these are things that God would delight to answer. And so we're called to ground our prayers in Scripture. Older theologians would talk about arguing with God in prayer as we ground our petitions and supplications in the revealed will of God as it comes to us in the Scriptures. And so when you pray, take a passage of Scripture, better yet, take a psalm, which is the prayer book of God's people, and let the truths that come out from that passage guide you in your praise and adoration of God. Let the truths of that passage lead you into a time of confession of sin, a time of thanksgiving. Whatever uh, imperatives are, are in that passage, let those be your supplication for yourself and for others. This is how we can pray with confidence as we pray according to the revealed will of God. And so uh, two practical ways we can persevere in prayer is to make prayer a habit and pray scripture. Ground our prayers in God's revealed will. Well, we could end our reflection upon this passage, and I could just tell you, go and do likewise. (laughs) Persevere in prayer. But I would like to point your attention to how Jesus ends this passage. Notice at the end of this parable in verse 8, we read, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I found it interesting that Jesus concludes this passage on prayer, on persevering in prayer, by referring to faith at the end. You would think he would say, when the Son of Man comes to consummate his kingdom, will he find his people persevering in prayer? But he doesn't say that. He says, will he find his people persevering in faith? Which seems to indicate that there's this close connection between faith and prayer. So much so that the one who is persevering in prayer is also the one who's persevering in faith, and vice versa. There's not an exact identity identity between faith and prayer, but there's a close connection between faith and prayer. And I think that's what Jesus wants us to see by referring to faith at the end of this parable on prayer. So Jesus doesn't get into this relationship in any great detail, but the rest of Scripture does. So I'd like us to uh, spend a few moments reflecting upon this relationship between faith and prayer. Between faith and prayer. What we see is that faith in Jesus is, is the only reason why prayer is even possible. So our sin creates this great chasm between us and God. Our sin brings about this alienation between us and our maker. It's as if our sins are bricks by which we create the soundproof room, a room in which our prayers go unheard by God. Well, Jesus, of course, comes to this earth to remedy the situation, and at this moment of Luke's gospel, he is coming close to the climax of his ministry. He's nearing Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, he will do what he came to this earth to do, to suffer and die in a Roman crucifix. And as we heard earlier in our service in 2 Corinthians 5, when Jesus goes to that cross, he takes upon himself all of the sins of the people of God. Now, Jesus himself committed no sin personally. 
but he takes upon himself the penalty and wrath that every single person that is counted among God's elect has committed. And we read that when he's hanging on that cross, he utters a prayer to his father, a prayer, uh, a prayer is something that he's already done countless of times before. And in that prayer, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' one unanswered prayer in his life happened on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his face away from his son. And why did he do that? Well, Jesus' prayer went unanswered so that your prayers could be answered. Did you hear that? Jesus' prayer on the cross went unanswered so that your prayers could be answered. Jesus took upon himself the penalty and punishment that your sin deserved so that you could be brought into the family of God. So that you could boldly approach God in his throne of grace as a child approaches his father. Jesus' prayer went unanswered so that your prayers could be answered. Talk about motivation to pray. We continue to be sinners. We can continue to sin against God's commandments. But yet, nevertheless, we can always come before our Father in prayer because of the work of Christ. So faith in Christ is the only reason prayer is even possible. If we haven't been covered by his righteousness, that is the righteousness of Christ, if we, if we haven't been, been cleansed by his blood, we have no hope of, of having our prayers Answered by a holy God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Boys and girls, this is why we pray in Jesus' name. We aren't confident that we're heard because of our own righteousness, but because of who represents us at God's right hand, Jesus Christ himself. Well, prayer also grants us rest. I mean, excuse me, faith. Faith also, faith also grants us rest in our prayer. What do I mean by this? Well, sometimes people refer to prayer as a means of grace. It's a means of grace in a way that's a bit different than the word in the sacraments. Because in the word of the sacraments, God comes to us and feeds us, nourishes us, builds us up in grace. The word and the sacraments are God's action towards us. Well, prayer is chiefly our action to God, our response to the word. And so how is prayer a means of grace? Well, oftentimes, in the very act of praying, the Spirit is creating within us a posture of humility, of dependence, and of trust. Prayer is the Spirit's means to create within us humility, trust, dependence. Think of Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says that when you're feeling anxious, your first, the first thing you need to do is to pray. Why? Well, when you're anxious, you're feeling like you need to, you're feeling as if you're in control of your entire life. And as the one who is sovereign over your life, you're beginning to get anxious because your life seems to be spinning out of your control. And so in the very act of praying, you are confessing that you are not the sovereign of your life. You are confessing that you are a mere creature and entrusting yourself to the only one who is sovereign over your life, the creator and sustainer of all things. And that's why Paul says that when you pray in response to anxiety, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
So you're recognizing, I never was meant to be in control of my life. God, and God alone, sits on that throne. Well, sometimes we take prayer, which is supposed to be a means of creating with us, in us humility and dependence and trust, and we use it as a tool in our tool bag of control. We think that we can use prayer as a means of manipulating and twisting God's harm. And we think, well, there's this whole list of things that I really want, a whole list of things that I want uh, not to happen, and as long as I pray enough, then I will get what I want. So I just, why go to bed at 9 p.m. when you can pray an extra hour and go to bed at 10 p.m.? Why spend your time doing um, secular recreations when you could be praying? You have not because you ask not. Maybe this thing could have been prevented if I would just would have prayed more. Maybe I would have this good thing in my life if I would have prayed more. And we get ourselves in this mode of thinking where how can we ever feel good about spending any minute of the day apart from prayer? So at this moment, we have to remember one of the great benefits we have as the people of faith. As those who profess faith in Christ, we are granted two helpers. So in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, we read that the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts is our intercessor, our attorney, as it were, represents us, pleads our case before the Father. And so in those moments when, and we read in Romans 8, 26, that the, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So those moments throughout your day when you just feel the emotion of anxiety, of stress, Maybe the emotion of, of gratitude. But you don't even have the space or time to utter or think intelligible words. What Paul is saying is that the Spirit is praying those emotions before the Father. The Spirit is taking those groanings too deep for words and interceding for you before the Father. And his intercedings are according to the will of God. Furthermore, later on in Romans chapter 8, in verse 34, we read that Christ Jesus not only died for us, but was raised, seated at God's right hand, and is interceding on your behalf. So you don't just have an intercessor in your heart, you have an intercessor at the right hand of God who is praying on your behalf night and day. So it allows us to lay our head on the pillow with a good conscience, is this recognition that we have two helpers who pray on our behalf. We will never pray as much as we ought. Even in our best days, we could have probably prayed more. And the, the longer we live on this earth, the more relationships we have, the more cares and burdens that fill our hearts. We'll get this sense all the more. So what gives us rest in our prayer life is knowing that we have two intercessors whose main job is to intercede for us according to the will of God. So congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to hear this imperative, how we ought to always pray and never lose heart. But don't forget who you are as a people of faith, a people whom Christ died for. Remember that Jesus' prayer went unanswered so that your prayers could be answered by a holy God. Remember that you have two intercessors, two helpers who are praying on your behalf.